Ladies and gentlemen, very warm good evening and welcome to this pre-performance talk before this evening's performance of Carousel. Um, I always love these events when we have a small audience because people always sit at the back and try and sit by themselves. Uh, that kind of very English thing. If you want to move forward, I'll turn my back like Grandma and you can do, you can do steps on me. Um, some house notices. Could you make certain you've turned off phones, watches that whistle, sing and dance and anything else? Um, if we need to leave, um, then we make our way to one of these signs. Uh, one there, one over there, one above the stairs, and we'll be escorted out by a member of the uh, Opera House staff. Um, no photographs, please, and no recording, but we will be recording the event, which will be on the English National Opera website probably within a couple of days, and you can hear the whole thing or anything you want to hear again. Let's begin with a very simple question. What do you do after you've written a spectacularly successful Broadway musical? And, more than that, a work that changed American musical theatre forever. Rodgers and Hammerstein's first collaboration, Oklahoma, opened on Broadway on March the 31st, 1943. It was a box office smash, and it ran for an unprecedented 2,212 performances. Later, enjoying award-winning revivals, national tours, foreign productions, it arrives in London in time, and above all, of course, an Academy Award-winning film adaptation in 1955. So what do you do next? The answer, curious answer, was a dark play written by a Hungarian playwright, Ferenc Molnar. It's called Lilium, and it was written in 1909. And it's changed. So Budapest becomes the main coastline on the east coast of America. And the story turns out much better, of course, when it goes west. The hero, renamed now Billy Bigelow, is still a carousel barker in love with a local girl. Here she's Julie Jordan. And it's love that costs them both their jobs, with Julie carrying Billy's child. Billy, desperate to put things right in some way, gets involved with a failed robbery and then takes his own life. And then, in a moment of grace, he's allowed a single day to return to Earth uh, and find the very daughter uh, uh, that he had never met, who is actually graduating from high school. And, of course, there's a parallel love story with the mill worker Carrie Pipperidge and her romance with the ambitious fisherman Enoch Snow. The musical required a great many change and rewrites during its out-of-town tryouts. But once it opened on Broadway on April the 19th, 1945, it was an enormous hit with both audiences and critics, and it ran for 890 performances. Well, to help us explore Rogers and Hammerstein's Carousel, we're joined by Neil Robinson, who's a staff director for English National Opera and who's been working on this production. Also with us are Will Barrett, who's covering the role of Billy Bigelow, and Murray Hipkin, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera and who conducts two of the performances in this current run. And Murray and Will are going to perform a number from Carousel for us. But our first guest is Dominic Simmons, who's a reader in drama at the University of Lincoln with a very special interest in musical theatre. Will you please welcome Dominic Simmons? Dominic, it seems in a sense odd, but what on earth was it do you think that appealed to Rodgers and Hammerstein about this play by Molnar Lillian? Well, I'm not sure that anything appealed to them immediately. They were commissioned to, uh, to produce the show. Um, they'd been working with the Theatre Guild in New York um, to do Oklahoma, 
Um, as it happened, the Theatre Guild was the company that Rogers uh, began his professional career with way back in the 20s, um, when he was writing with Lawrence Hart. And um, so the Theatre Guild had already worked with him, and when they came to uh, adapt Green Grow the Lilacs into Oklahoma, it was Rogers and Hart that they turned to. Well, as we know, Hart didn't end up writing Oklahoma, it was Hammerstein instead. Um, and following the great success of that, that was when the Theatre Guild came back to them and said, okay, what's going to be our next production? We want to repeat success. Um, so we've got an idea, which is that there's this Hungarian play, Lilium, um, which the Theatre Guild themselves had staged as a play in about 1920. And we think that this would make a great show. Well, Rogers and Hammerstein weren't entirely sold on that, um, so it took quite a bit of uh, encouraging them to do it. it was, was there, for them, do we know pressure? I mean, did they feel, you know, having created Oklahoma, having, in a sense, known what they had achieved, rather remarkably, in terms of changing the direction of American music, did, did they feel enormous pressure about writing the second show? I think it's easy for us to, to see this as a second show uh, of a partnership, but what we shouldn't forget is that both Rogers and Hammerstein were veterans of Broadway. Um, they'd uh, each had uh, 20, 25 uh, productions on Broadway over the years. Um, and so although Oklahoma was uh, groundbreaking, was enormously important and was their um, first real collaboration, um, it wasn't their first success. Hammerstein had been involved with Showboat, for example, in 1927, um, and lots of other shows. Um, Rogers, of course, had been working on shows such as Babes in Arms and On Your Toes and Pal Joey. So they both were <coughs> veterans of the stage. In terms of uh, the pressure to repeat the success of Oklahoma, I'm sure that was something that, um, that they were keen to, to emulate. Um, but... I guess by the time you've had that sort of amount of uh, professional experience under your belt, um, they are able to write a show which is not only crafted well, but which is also shrewdly written to be a commercial success. Who decides to move the whole thing away from Budapest to uh, the coast of Maine? Well, actually, that was one of the issues that Hammerstein particularly had with the show. He was uncomfortable about setting it in Budapest, I think partly because that might have been too much of a return to a, a sort of world of operetta, if you like. Um, and they were very keen to create an American world. So um, the first suggestion, which came from the Theatre Guild, was that uh, the show should be relocated to New Orleans um, and... He also wasn't happy with that. He didn't feel comfortable with the sort of dialect that that would involve. So it was Rogers who suggested that they just simply put it in New England, close enough to home for them to feel mm. comfortable. And, of course, it works fantastically. Is Carousel sufficiently different from, from, from Oklahoma to suggest that, once again, what these two men are really interested in, quite apart from writing hit shows, is stretching the form of musical theatre? Yes, so the, the big impact that Oklahoma had was that it's recognised as being the first integrated musical. Now, that's a bit contested, but let's assume that that's right. Oklahoma is integrated in the sense that the songs seamlessly flow in, as part of the narrative and as part of the drama. Um, and it was this that both Rogers and Hammerstein had been striving to create throughout their careers. Um, 
all of this is packaged into a much wider concern, I think, which is for the American musical to gain an identity that's different from European culture. Um, America, in the early 20th century, um, this is frightful, and I'm sorry if there's any Americans here, but America didn't have its own culture and instead borrowed lots of culture from uh, Europe, from England. And so uh, it was President Roosevelt in the early teens who called for an American culture to be created. And part of the reason that we have an explosion of uh, musical theatre happening in the late teens and 20s is because of exactly that call. So the development of the integrated musical, of this, um, of this aspiration to create an art form rather than simply something that stems out of review and vaudeville uh, really comes from that uh, idea of creating something that is truly American, truly cultural and truly artistic. Do you think that Carousel, um, in retrospect, is possibly the most operatic of the, the great shows these two wrote? Yes, I would certainly say that. Um, and I think there are a number of things which testify to that. Interestingly, one of the original Broadway reviewers, Brooks Atkinson, for the New York Times, uh, mentioned himself how he felt it was uh, an operatic type of show. Um, and Rogers certainly saw it as his most uh, operatic show. Um, I guess that speaks not only to his aspiration to create an American cultural form, but also to be recognised as a classical composer, as Gershwin had been, for example, one of his contemporaries. Um, he was, despite the fact that he was a popular songsmith, he really wanted that sort of um, respect from uh, the arbiters of value. Hammerstein, from the, almost from the very beginning, if one thinks of Showboat, but certainly perhaps of Oklahoma too, um, and latterly of South Pacific, has always been interested in interrogating ideas about America. You can argue that South Pacific is about uh, the difficulty of white racial supremacy. You can argue Oklahoma is about the claims of state as opposed to nation, etc. Is the same true of Carousel? What America is being interrogated here? Well, I think... Um it's true, certainly true to say that Hammerstein was very much committed to um, a liberal sense of values and a sense of um, America's ideals. Um, I think the, the timing of this show is significant, which is that it comes um, right at the end of what we know now as the end of the war. Um, but of course, this was uh, being conceived and created just after America went into the Second World War. And so there was a big sense of um, America not only um, having a role to play with the outside world, but also a sense of the America losing its men and American women losing their husbands. And this in some way is a sort of allegory for, for that. Um, so what Julie goes through in losing Billy is actually replicated in what many of the audience are going through. Is it also a sense in which this is why we fight? This is one of the kind of four freedoms, this version of America. Quintessentially, the Founding Fathers, uh, New England, white clapboard. Is it also that? But it's a very quick shorthand for Americanism. I think that's, that's probably very true. Um, interestingly, uh, one of the scenes which um, we'll be seeing in the show later on tonight... Um, which involves uh, a star keeper, a god figure, who uh, is, is 
uh, depicted in quite an abstract way on a stepladder hanging stars on a washing line. Um, but originally, um, that scene had been uh, located in a sort of colonial living room with uh, a, a husband and wife, Mr. and Mrs. God, as they used to call them. So, um, and they got rid of that in the, the tryouts. But, um, but actually, I think that that speaks volumes about the way in which that sense of all-American value uh, the homestead, the family, all of those sort of uh, uh, liberal and yet rather conservative ideals were a part of what they were fashioning as an American identity. Do we know if the show had a smooth run through its tryouts to its eventual success on Broadway? Well, actually, Rogers and Hammerstein themselves thought that the show was going to be a terrible flop in tryouts. Um, and it, this wasn't helped by the fact that uh, Richard Rogers had uh, stumbled off a train uh, on the day of the dress rehearsal and had injured his back. So he ended up watching the, uh, the first performance from a stretcher in one of the boxes. <laughs> and he was so drugged up uh, that he apparently thought that the audience were hating it and that it was really bombing. Um, now, of course, we know that that wasn't true, but there were some slight concerns like that. In terms of the show itself, um, as with a lot of tryouts, they make changes as they go along. You mentioned some earlier. Yeah. Um, so Mr and Mrs God disappeared and the Starkeeper emerges. Um, there are a couple of musical changes as well. Yeah. And one of the big changes was that um, the carousel waltz at the beginning of the show, which uh, involves a sort of tableau scene of the fairground, um, was originally uh, staged by Ruben Mamoulian, the director, but in fact, they decided that it wasn't working and that they would get Agnes de Mille, the choreographer, to stage it instead, creating much more of a sort of ballet in the scene. Who, of course, has worked on Oklahoma. She had, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, Where would you put Carousel in the kind of pecking order of these two great men's work? That's a question that's difficult for me to separate because it happens to be one of my favourite shows. Um, so I think I would probably place it first because of that. But I think if we to look at it a little objectively... Um, it's, it's not got the impact of Oklahoma, but I think what it has got is a, a sense of the confidence and surety of Rogers and Hammerstein, knowing they can work together, knowing that their mission to create this sort of integrated model is working, and um, I think stretching themselves ambitiously, both in terms of the content, uh, it, it's quite serious subject matter that they're dealing with, and in terms of Rogers... Uh, scoring of the show. Dominic, thank you very much indeed. Stay with us, please. Thank it's you, Dominic Simmons. Um, we're joined now by Murray Hipkin, who's a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, and who, as I've said, is going to conduct two of the performances in this run. And with him, Will Barrett, who's covering the role of Billy Bigelow. Will you welcome Murray and Will? Musical chairs, as always. Um, you will know, Will, that in this world you have to speak for your supper before you're allowed to sing it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> was Carousel a show that you've always liked? Yes, I, uh, it's a show that I uh, knew before doing it. I, I, I did a production of it about eight years ago at the Savoy. Um, the one that uh, Leslie Garrett was singing, Natty, and, uh, and we did a small UK tour, and then we did a, about nine months at the Savoy. So I knew it then, and I knew it when I was at college studying it, because mm. of, it was, there were some beautiful songs that I was, that had in my rep there, like If I Loved You and things mm. like that. Mm. So I kind of studied the show from that, and 
such a beautiful score and beautiful music to sing. Is it the score that you really like about it? Um, as, as, as a show, yeah. in, in full, uh, y yes, that is one of the things, but the score led me to actually kind of research the show. Um, the score, which you'll hear tonight, played by the most fabulous orchestra, um, is a massive, a massive uh, part of this show that is overwhelmingly wonderful um, and makes it such a, such a beautiful thing. But not just that. I think one of the things that makes it wonderful is, is, is a great book as well. These, it, that first 20, 25 minute bench scene is a landmark, I think, in terms of musical theater, because it's, it's got so many ins and outs between, and it's just mostly just the two of them having this, this kind of spark and, and banter that's, that's wonderfully written, subtle, and it gives them, uh, and it's way, and the other thing about it is it's way ahead of, it was way ahead of its time. There's something about Billy Bigelow that is also perhaps ahead of its time. He's a much more complex character, mm. uh, perhaps, though there are others in Oklahoma, than you expect to find in musical theatre. Yeah, absolutely. He's, um, he's, he's got a lot of baggage and he's, uh, he's quite damaged, as you'll see in tonight, uh, tonight's um, production. Um, that's somewhat inferred kind of sins of the father being passed on to the son um, as... Um, Lonnie's, um, Lonnie Matzer and Josh's um, choreography, you'll see. Basically, in the prologue, they've, they've kind of put a little bit in there uh, where he's hit by his father. You can see the young Billy being hit by his father, which gets passed on to him. And this, it kind of gives it a small explanation as to why he's a part of his character, why he's turned out slightly of the way he is. But he is a very, he is a very complicated character. And although people have, uh, can aim some criticism at uh, Carousel sometimes saying, oh, it's a bit um, old-fashioned in its notions and things like that. I think it was way ahead of its time because it tackled issues that are still prevalent today. The, the, we do still have domestic violence and people don't talk about it. Um, and it's not like it's gone away. It is still very much there. And the notion of stand by your man and things like that are still very much happening. But they did tackle it in a very real way. They didn't, they didn't shy away from showing it and it doesn't glorify it either. So what, what for you are the real demands of the part? I mean, it's long, but what are the other demands? What have you got to do? I think the most demanding thing is actually making him likable because he's such a bastard in many ways. <laughs> um, you know, how do you, how do you make someone who's, who you find out has been beating their wife likable? Because there's a charm about it. There is a, there's got to be a charm about him because you've got to understand in that first 20 minute scene why the hell Julie Jordan, this quite moralistic girl, and she's quite odd in many ways, she's stuck in her ways, um, goes, falls for this carousel barker. So the challenge, the biggest challenge, I think, for, for myself, and I know for, for Alfie when, he was, uh, when we were going through rehearsals, because I was obviously part of that rehearsal process with um, Neil uh, um, and, and Lonnie and everything in, in rehearsal room every step of the way. The, the difficulty is finding that in the first scene as that charm, trying to make him see why he's likable, as well as you know, find, also finding the, the kind of inner raging bull, which is evidently there. And, and more than, than the, the singing and, and, frankly, the dancing too. I mean, those, you, you, the, the amount of kind of um, husbanding resources you must have to have in this role. Uh, you're there virtually on stage the whole time. Yeah, he's on stage a fair amount of the time, yeah. Um, and he's, <coughs> it's quite, it is a very demanding part. 
um, vocally as well. And, and I think uh, what um, Dominic was saying earlier on, it is, I think as well, I agree, I think it's probably one of the most operatic of their scores. I think Murray will probably agree with that. When we, when we were going through it, it's the vocal line of it is, to, is made to be sung mm. in, in, in quite an operatic way in many ways. But at the same time, you have to get that the musical theatre element of it in the, mm. in the sense that you have to convey the, this, this, this character that mm. we were just talking about, which they do so well through the music as well, because it has many twists and turns. Mm. I'm, I'm presuming you've sung the part on stage here. Uh, yes. And yeah, I just yeah. wonder what on earth it's like to sing this music on this huge stage. Daunting. <laughs> um, Molly, who's sat in the uh, uh, over there, um, covers Catherine, so she's mm. she's my counterpart, um, and covers Julie Jordan. She was on on Tuesday, um, and uh, it's obviously the space. I mean, the, beauti be the beautiful acoustics on that. So when, when we're doing the rehearsals with just the piano and on stage, you can. It, it's quite lovely to sing in that space on its own, on mics and everything mm. like that. But bear in mind, which is usually the case, obviously, with, with the operas that happen here, but the orchestra's raised here, which means it's the, the sound is a lot more prevalent of the orchestra. You get hit by it, which is fantastic, mm. and so you should, because it's incredible. But that also means you'd have to battle with an orchestra right at your feet. Mm. And that's not, that's not something you want to do in this space. So obviously you might. So that is... That's the, I think that would, that's a big challenge and, of, and one that Molly was talking about when, after the show the other night mm. is you've got the orchestra, you've got the reverb, you've got the monitor, you've got, it's, it's, it is a huge space to fill. In, it's the biggest theatre I've ever. So. You, you've come wonderfully dressed for, for the role as Bigler, <laughs> um, as Willie, <coughs> Billy. As what, 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 what are you going to sing for us? I'm going to sing the soliloquy. Great, okay. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Where, <clears> where it comes? Yeah, I mean... Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's at the end of Act One. Um, it is the point at which Billy has just found out, literally in the last five minutes, that he's going to be a father. Mm. Um, and you've also seen, in the last scene before it, um, his, him snap at his wife as well, uh, in, a, in, a, in a most ungentlemanly way, and have a complete change of heart, which he often does. He's very, he's, he's, he kind of has these, these, these flips that kind of remind him on the, the spur of a moment that he, of what he's doing, you know, make him look at himself. And this is one of the moments she comes uh, to give him coffee and then just blurts it out and says, I'm pregnant. And he's just snapped at her. And he has a complete change of heart and goes, oh my God, this is amazing. This, uh, wow, okay. Uh, and then he has this, um, kind of soliloquy in which he kind of ponders the, uh, the many wonders of fatherhood ahead of him. <laughs> okay. Thank you. We look forward Difficulties. Difficulties. <laughs> <clears throat> I wonder what he'll think of me, I guess he'll call me the old man. I guess he'll think I can lick every other fella's father. Well, I can. I bet that he'll turn out to be a spitting image of his dad. But he'll have more common sense than his pudding-headed father ever had. 
I'll teach him to wrestle and dive through a wave when we go in the mornings for a swim. His mother can teach him the way to behave, but she won't make a sissy out of him. Not him, not my boy, not Bill. Bill. My boy Bill, I will see that he's named after me. I will. My boy Bill, he'll be tall and as tough as a tree. Will be like a tree, he'll grow with his head held high and his feet planted firm on the ground. And you won't see nobody dare to try to boss him or toss him around. No pot belly baggy, I bully or boss him. what he does. As long as he does what he likes, he can sit on his tail or work on a rail with a hammer, a hammer and spikes. He can ferry a boat on a river or pedal a pack on his back or work up and down the streets of a town with a whip and a horse and a hack. He can haul a scow along a canal, run a cow around a corral, or maybe bark for a carousel. Of course, it takes talent to do that well. He might be champ of the heavyweights or a fella that sells you glue or president of the United States. That'd be all right, too. <laughs> yeah, his mother would like that, but he wouldn't be president unless he wanted to be. Not Bill. My boy Bill, he'll be tall and as tough as a tree. Will be like a tree. Boss him around. And I'm damned if you'll marry his boss's daughter. A skinny lipped virgin with blood like water. We'll give him a peck and call it a kiss. And look in his eyes through a lorgnette. Say, why am I taking on like this? My kid ain't even been born yet. I can see him when he's 17 or so And starting in to go with a girl I can give him lots of pointers very sound On the way to get round any girl I can tell him Wait a minute Could it be? What the hell? What if he is a girl? Bill. Oh, Bill. What could I do for her? What would I do with her? A bum with no money. You can't have fun with a son, but you gotta be a father to a girl. Mightn't be so bad at that. A kid with ribbons in her hair. A kind of sweet and petite little tin type of a mother. What a pair!
guest, ladies and gentlemen. It's Neil Robinson, who's a staff director here at English National Opera and who's been working on this show. Will you welcome our last guest, Neil Robinson. Thank you. Neil, is this the first time that you've worked on Carousel? Um, no, actually. I, I was lucky enough to direct it myself when I was at university back in about 2005, so quite a long time ago. Um, so, no, this is my second outing with Carousel. And what do you like about this show? I think the obvious answer is the score. I mean, um, I, I grew up listening to it, and I knew the score rather a lot better than I knew the story for many, many years. Um, but then after, after watching the film, reading the script, um, what I admire about it is that the story acknowledges that, that people are not perfect and sometimes make bad choices and bad decisions. Um, and I think from the point of view of a director, that, that's very interesting. What are the challenges of trying to get this show on stage? Uh, traditionally speaking, I suppose, the carousel <coughs> that people expect to see. Um, obviously, our version is a, a semi-stage version, which has allowed some license for a, an interesting way to present that. And I think, actually, uh, what we do in this production is, as well as being visually stunning, is, is very... Uh, dramatically effective as well and uh, on a dramatic level I suppose the issue that's already been raised by by will of, of the domestic violence is something that when directors read the script sort of want to pull their hair out a bit about these days um, in how to present that and to to make it sensitive and, and real. Is there a temptation to 
surrender to perhaps a rather sweeter version of what Carousel might be than, in fact, the the book and, indeed, the, the score allow for. I mean, sometimes you can slip into a kind of rather sugary... But that must be something you have to constantly watch. Sure. I think the piece uh, could tip into saccharin if you were not careful. But I think that there is so much material there to explore um, regarding the, the, the darker elements of human nature that uh, you can't avoid not dealing with them, to be honest, in this piece. And you've also got to carry complete credibility to the end. We've got to believe, all of us, in the fact that we'll never walk alone, haven't we? Sure. Otherwise, what's the point in going to the theatre if you, if you don't believe what you're seeing? You've said the production is semi-staged. Um, there's no carousel, but there's a wonderful, as it were, kind of version of it. Mm -hmm. what, what are the other elements that, that make this a semi-stage? Because to, to my eyes, when I came, it looked a complete version of stage. I would agree with you. Um, I think the, the term semi-staged uh, has been interpreted very loosely by the designer and uh, the director. I, I don't really believe there's, there's very much that's, that's semi-staged about this at all. I think, for my money, it's a, it's a fully staged version. Have you made any changes? Have you adapted things? Um, I think that the big changes or adaptations in this version really come in uh, the choreography. Um, we had uh, an amazing uh, man called Josh Rhodes as our choreographer, and he came up with some, some concepts both in the prologue and in the ballet um, that I think are things that have, uh, to my knowledge at least, never, never been done in Carousel. Again, Will alluded earlier to the fact that in the prologue we, we don't just deal with the fairground. We go back in time, uh, we see Billy's upbringing or, or part of it. And also what I think is great is in the prologue the, the fact that in Act Two we're about to go somewhere fantastical halfway through it it is set up right at the beginning. Uh, so what's been a very naturalistic piece for nearly two hours uh, doesn't seem so, so bizarre then when we, we tip into heaven and the Starkeeper scenes. In, for me, what that immediately reminded me was, of course, this had begun life as a rather strange play, it perhaps in a kind of expressionist tradition mm -hmm. uh, written in Hungary in the early years of the 20th century. In a way, you've held faith as much with, with Molnar's play, perhaps, mm -hmm. as, as what these two men make of it. I think, I think that's a fair comment, yeah, and I think that's something that, uh, for Lonnie Price, the director, uh, was very important, and I know he went back to the source material many, many times in, in designing his, his concept for the piece. How free are you uh, with the show, with Rogers Hammerstein's show, to change things? I mean, is there a kind of strict control from, 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 from whoever controls the estate? I, I believe that the estate um, are, are very guarded about allowing changes to be made, and I think it's, it's right that they, they should do. They have allowed a few, uh, a few changes in this. We've, we've cut a song, The Highest Judge of All, um, and they have also allowed for a couple of the, um, the vocal ranges to be adjusted uh, uh, for uh, Nettie, Brenda Edwards, and Nettie is singing uh, an, a lower octave than, than is traditionally done for her numbers. And very excitingly so, too. Very exciting. Um, it's a huge stage, mm -hmm. vast stage. I mean, is that a challenge, too, to all of you working on the production? I think... I think by doing it on a, a very large stage like, like the Colosseum, it makes the, the piece feel very epic, especially with the full orchestration. It sort of feel like you're sitting through a, a Gone with the Wind or something like that. 
I mean, it, it, there are many scenes though where you've only got two characters on stage, um, and then the danger is of it feeling very, very sparse. But some clever lighting design helps to to not make that the case, I think. And you've also put the orchestra on, on a raised platform in the pit so we can see them, so that they are part of the show in a, in a very special way, aren't they? Yes, they are. And I think, uh, again, because this has been licensed as a semi-staged version, mm. um, that is one of the terms of, of the license, that the orchestra have to be featured in the performance. There are those who will tell you this is really a, a star vehicle for two, uh, maybe two and a half uh, characters. Is that true or is it really an ensemble piece? Hmm. I think I would probably disagree with that. I think the whole point of Carousel is that we're examining a community of people. Um, and whilst we hone in on the stories of Billy and Julie or Carrie and Enoch, really you, you could pick any members of that community to, to hone in on their stories. Um, yeah, I, I, I also don't think that any one of the, the main characters has enough material to really uh, warrant it being called a, a star vehicle. You've got English National Opera's chorus on stage. Yes. Um, do each of these people, as they seem from the, from the stalls, do they have an identity and a character? Have you worked very hard to create this community through each of these individuals? Yes, I would hope so. I think that's one of the very nice things about the piece is that, that people have one character that they maintain throughout. Um, and I know, again, Josh Rhodes, who worked the most with the chorus and the ensemble, certainly uh, encouraged people to, to find a character for themselves and, and to stick with that through the piece. This is so much a slice of America. Um, hearing earlier that it belongs so crucially to 1945, uh, parents bringing up children without uh, fathers and so forth. How easy is it for an English company to work their way into the Americanism of the show? Um, yes, it, it is obviously an English company, but it, I have to say it hasn't really felt like an English production because all of our creative team were American. A director, our associate director, costume designer, set designer, even the conductor. So they've been keeping a very close eye on uh, the authenticity of, of things in, in being true to, to the American. Neil, thank you very much. Ladies and we have a little time in hand. If any of you would like to ask any of our five distinguished guests anything, there is a roving microphone which is about to come. Put up your hand, catch my eye, and I'll make sure that my friend is in the front row. Um, I'd just like to ask, um, is it frustrating for you <laughs> being the understudy? Do you ever wish that um, <laughs> you're going to trip help you downstairs? <laughs> Obviously, the blocking has to be kind of roughly be the same, so it doesn't completely throw someone off. It's, 
you run it up there, well, well they would be doing the scene over here. But inside of that, you're you, you exploring your own character. So from that point of view, it hasn't, it hasn't been uh, frustrating. Um, you know, it'd be lovely to, to, to kind of go on and, and, and do it a few more times, but uh, it's, I mean, we're literally only here for I mean, five or six weeks. So um, it's, it's actually quite nice to be, to be seeing it from you know, the other angle. Do we have another... Sorry, I cut you off. Sorry. Do we have another question? Anyone else would like to ask any of our guests another question? You see, you've stunned them all into silence. Um, I'd, I'd just like to, before what we say, thank you to all our guests and thank you to you, to remind you this is the last of the pre-performance talks for this season of the English National Opera. For every show that goes on stage here, there is a pre-performance talk. If you've not been before, if you've enjoyed yourself, please come back again. Um, it, I think it's a great way of raising the curtain for most of us on what we're going to see on stage when we don't always know it. So uh, come again when the season opens uh, in the autumn. In the meantime, thank you for being here and thank you to our guests for giving us such an extraordinary insight into what you're going to see tonight. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.